Are you looking to simplify your investments? Check out BMO ETFs. Your asset allocation can have a major impact on whether you will meet your financial goals. So it's no wonder Canadian investors are turning to asset allocation ETFs to complement their portfolios. BMO offers easy-to-use solutions such as the BMO Growth ETF, BMO Balance ETF, BMO All Equity ETF, and more. These ETFs invest in a number of underlying index-based ETFs and are rebalanced automatically. What was once a popular mutual fund strategy is now available through an ETF with the introduction of the T6 units. T6 units provide a 6% annual payout on a monthly basis, helping retirees meet their cash flow needs. This is available on their balanced and growth asset allocation ETFs. Regular rebalancing means you can spend less time planning your life and more time living it. Learn more at bmoetfs.com. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get a key to the Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 88. As always, joined by the three amigos. We got Keith Dicker, Ice Cap Asset Management, Rich Diaz, Acorn Macro. What's going on? Me? Oh, it's beautiful weather in London. It's been 25, 28 degrees every day for the last two weeks, which is fantastic. And uh, I uh, yesterday after my client meeting, I took the afternoon off and just cycled around all of London with a big smile on my face. But that's not important. What's important is we have some corrections and follow-ups from last week. Very quickly, Cato... <laughs> C-A-T-O was an influential Roman senator. There's also Cato from the Green Hornet, which is what Keith was talking about. And finally, my favorite, which is catastrophic at takeoff, which is apparently an acronym used in rocket science. Science, science rocket science? Anyways, there you go. So Keith, <laughs> there you go. Now you're, now you're informed, Keith. Yeah, I mean, because I think we were all over the map with the Cato one. But the guy that I'm thinking of actually is a Cato Kalin. Again, the guy, he... <laughs> You guys were too young to remember this, but a long time ago, this American football player, OJ Simpson, was a, a, allegedly murdered his wife. Anyway, the, one of the star witnesses was this guy that lived in his pool house, a bit of a surfer dude. Uh, his name was was Cato. So that's a popular okay. name. Maybe you guys can use it if you uh, have you guys have children together one of these days. <laughs> the Green Hornet. Uh, yeah. No, Cato. Yeah. Uh, we're starting off strong today <laughs> yeah speaking of uh just to quickly touch before we get into the uh episode is the vancouver event people have been asking about tickets trust me you guys will be the first to know when the tickets are released uh they'll go out first and foremost to our previous attendees um but if there are any businesses out there that want to entertain a sponsorship for the vancouver event july 27th please send us an email um Likewise, we're also going to be doing like a meet and greet a couple of days later in Calgary on July, Saturday, the 29th. Uh, so we're actually still trying to figure out a venue. Uh, so if you've got a venue that can fit, you know, 75 to 100 people as a social meet and greet, you know, local bar, whatever, brewery, uh, we're all ears also looking for sponsorships as well. Uh, so again, if you've got anyone, know anything, recommendations, send us a few emails. We'd uh, greatly appreciate that. But um, I think it's time to dive into this week's episode, Rich. We've got, you know, you and I were getting into it uh, with the Twitter trolls prior to this uh, this launch of this episode. 
just looking at some of the national housing statistics that came out today. Um, and so it's, it's kind of more of the same and we're going to kind of dig through this, but uh, new listings continue to be sort of the primary story, I think coming into this year. So if you look at, you know, May month of May, it was the fewest number of new listings on a nationwide basis since outside of May of 2020, which was the start of the pandemic, uh, May of 2009. So you've got like, you know, these, what, 14, 15 year lows in new listings. We've had 20 year lows in the past. So it kind of continues to be that story, which is quite fascinating. Because again, everyone, including myself, coming into this calendar year was like, listen, interest rates are up. Uh, you know, there's going to be distress forming investors, negative cash flow, highly indebted households are going to have to put their homes onto the market and, and we're going to test the inventory levels. And it's actually been the complete opposite so far. Yeah. So Keith keeps warning us against arguing with people on the internet and we keep ignoring him. <laughs> Maybe uh, this is the time it finally sinks in. Um, yeah. It's obviously, I mean, you, you were, I mean, don't be too hard on yourself, Steve. You were uh, you were right about this. It's a supply issue. Um, I would say be patient as far as people eventually getting squeezed and putting that kind of stuff on um, their listings back onto the market. But that's obviously a, an area you know much, much better. Um, I thought it was interesting that we're having a sort of a similar story in the US, which is a market I know much, much better. But um, but back to the um but back to Canada, I mean, I did see that the sales recorded actually increased between April and May. So is that is that more of the same? Yeah, we. I mean, there's no question you've seen this rebound in sales. Like it's still, you know, there was they were, they were up year over year compared to last year, which I think is the first time since 2020. So, you know, sales are definitely recovering. I wouldn't say they're red hot i think you're kind of like you're kind of near your long-term average for for monthly sales so it's you know the, the demand is okay i just think like what we're seeing like feet on the ground is basically all most of the demand that's being driven today is from these like young families they need to enter the housing market they're not waiting for like the big crash that may or may not happen like you know they've got a kid they got a second on the way they need to upsize they need to go to a certain school catchment so they're moving and they're just having to transact in an environment with very low inventory which is creating these you know multiple offer bidding war situations and thus driving the prices up you know you're not seeing the pandemic era where all these investors were adding to their portfolio like that's that's just that demand is still not there today which makes sense. I mean, if you think about it, um, you know, if you're an investor today, yeah, the rents are up, they're up, you know, decent amount, but they're certainly not enough to up enough to offset your mortgage costs. You know, I would actually argue that like, at least in Vancouver, like one, you know, a one bedroom condo, which is what most of these investors are buying prices are up. I mean, in Vancouver, they're hitting new highs. And so as an investor, it's, 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 the numbers just don't pencil at all. Can I just ask another question? So in, in the UK, there's estate agents here. Uh, they have a bad reputation, but for the most part, I'm sure they're okay. We all do. And they do. <laughs> and they do. No, no, you have a, you're great. <laughs> Calls deep. Anyway, um, but they, they do both uh, rentals and they, they sort of manage, do some kind of property management. And then they also do sales. Um, and from that, and because they're able to do that, they actually see both sides of the market. Do you, I mean, I don't know much about your business to be very honest with you, but do you do that as well? Do you do rentals and that kind of stuff? Or is that a totally separate business in Canada? And uh, 
I don't. I mean, there's some agents that do. It's technically a different, it's technically an additional or different license. I just find like, at least in Vancouver, it's like, yeah, I mean, most of the, the really I find to be, to be truthful is like most of the successful agents typically aren't doing both just because okay. like the rental market is just, it's just not really worth your time and effort in my opinion. Okay. Okay. Cause I have a follow-up. I have a follow-up because what I'm, cause I know here because the interest rates have gone up so much. And so you can see for variable rates, you're in the sixes and, and you know, it's a very, it's the same exact situation. So people are just moving out of purchasing homes and, and now they're just renting. And so there's been a lot of impulse on the rental market. I know this because I may or may not be trying to get rid of my flat here in a couple months, which is, and so you're seeing the rental. And I was just wondering if that was what's happening. Are you, are you going to rent out your place? Yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to sell it. No, I can't. I mean, I, I, I don't I get want my to, license I... over there. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, this is a bit personal, but you know, buying the flat in London was a complete disaster as far as an investment is concerned. I bought at the peak in 2015. I should have listened to you probably, but uh, I was smart enough to, yeah, I was smart enough to lock in my mortgage rate for 10 years uh, last May. So uh, now like, it's what, basically. 2%? Two percent, two point zero nine percent. So you're paying off you like what fifty five percent of your payment is principal. More than that, actually, more. Yeah, it's like almost two, it's almost three quarters actually, or two thirds or whatever. But uh, can we talk about the housing starts? Yeah, well, I, I mean, yeah. So on the same day, um, you know, housing starts rolled over significantly. Rich, I, you you've got the chart. I mean, I've been following it, but I think uh, you know, like because I was looking at the April numbers a couple weeks ago, and of course the main numbers are telling uh, a different story. Yeah. So it's 202,000 housing starts. So it's an annualized seasonally adjusted number. So there's some shenanigans in, involved, but I think the more important thing is it's sort of back to the 2015 to 2020 trend. So the pre-pandemic trend, there was a big, big jump um, in 2021. Um, I promised to share the, the, this chart. Um, and so we're sort of back to, to this like, you know, longer term trend. And that longer term trend, in my view, is just not good enough. I mean, the argument we got in, in uh, not to give this guy too much credit, but the argument we got on, on Twitter was that, oh, you know, it's, it's to do with immigration. He said, no, it's to do with monetary policy. I'm going to blow everybody's mind here. Sometimes it's more than just one thing <laughs> that it works in concert with another thing in order to push up and or down an economic or financial market variable. Um, so I think we need to move away from this like linear thinking where it's just one thing or just the other. Sometimes it's both uh, and. Anyway, sorry. I don't know, Keith, if you well, wanted to <laughs> jump in there. Well, right now I'm still staring at, for those that watch the video, like Steve's wearing a new shirt today. I just can't <laughs> stop right. staring at don't you see that? It, it's really nice. Well, you have nice glasses. <laughs> I know. Yeah, we, we're all getting uh, fancied up. Um, right. You know, I'm just like, you know, uh, you know, the whole real estate narrative. I'm not strong in that in that world. I know, you know, a lot, but not to have a strong opinion on it. But the, the, the point you just made, Rich, is absolutely correct. In that it's, it's the same like the conversation we had with Robert last week in that you can never have just one factor moving one factor influences another factor and the degree by which one moves it could have a greater or smaller effect on another one and, and so forth but um you know it's, so you see that coming along here but it is well, fascinating though to watch the entire you know rent versus own 
debate or conversation yeah. that that's taking place. And of course, you know, you can have the real estate market getting softer in, in some markets, but yet the cost of financing has gone up. So it's actually more expensive for some people. So I, I'm still in, I still have the view, you know, we'll get into what the central banks have been saying this week, because there's a lot of data came out. It was a pretty exciting 48 hours, exciting, you know, for, you know, central bank wonks, but um, it's, you know, we are still set up here now to either, we will never have a recession again, which is by the way, with every single member of the fed, that's what they're predicting as of now, that there's no recession coming up. Anyone following the Bank of England? You know, well, they went from predicting like the worst recession ever to they're not having a recession and, and they're going to jack up rates. I think rates by 75 beeps over the next year. Yeah, the, the, there's more and more hikes getting priced we're, in. We're, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. get into all the uh, the central bank stuff here. We got US CPI. We got some stuff out of China. So we're, we're going to get into all that. But uh you know, to circle back on like Rich's point that, you know, like there's so many factors, right? It's like you've got foreign capital flows. We know that obviously you had the China wave in 15, 16. You've got like, I don't think like Rich, you and I can both agree. Like the, I think Keith too, like the primary driver I'd argue for Canadian housing for, for pre price appreciation has been cheap and abundant credit for a, uh, going on a decade plus. Like, yeah, yes, immigration I mean, for sure is playing a factor. Uh, the, the inability to actually build housing to keep up with that immigration, definitely a factor. Um, and so it's never like one thing and people get all upset because like, you know, Rich and I are pointing out like immigration and housing starts, immigration up, housing starts down, not a great outlook. But it's but also last, a bit of oh, a, uh, yeah, it's also a bit of a, um, you know, maybe this won't come out the right way, but the whole housing story in Canada is is, is a bit cultish as well. Totally. In that you don't totally. own a home, you got to own a house. You don't have a house. <laughs> oh, I have I have three houses. You do have, I have four. You know, when you have a lot of that going on, then, you know, absolutely, you know, low rates and, and you know, really good credit, you know, enable that to go further. And then, you know, a decade with, not I know Alberta had a rough time there in 2015 when, when oil came off, but generally there hasn't been a, re a recession floating around in Canada for a long time. And then, of course, you got the immigration story at, at the tail end of it. So, you know, don't feel bad if you don't, if you feel like you're being left out, because it's, you know, it's just one of these phases we're, we're going through. And phase is always self-correct, guys. So sometimes patience really does. But Rich, I mean, it's I definitely a disturbing trend. I get plan. it, right? Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm a millennial. Sorry, cohort. Oh, sort of. I can't you know? believe you're not going to sell your flat in in London. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. But yeah. you know, while Keith, to your to your point there uh, on on mortgage credit, uh, mortgage credit growth in Canada actually coming in uh, in Q1 of this year, coming in at a 20 year low. 20 year low yeah. for credit growth, which is going to be interesting because I think like. Um, so basically the Canadian households added a net, net 11.2 billion in mortgage debt in Q1 of this year, smallest increase in two decades. Um, but uh, you know, I'm interested. But a lot of that, Steve, though, like some people think that might be consumer driven. A lot of it is bank driven as well. Yeah. And, and like anyone else that is issuing credit, because all of a sudden we've gone like from two years ago where, yeah, like, you know, lend money to someone if, even if they don't have a heartbeat, just, just, you know. <laughs> give it to them and now they're probably being more selective so less people may not be able to qualify or they cannot qualify for as much as what they needed before it still means that there's you know the supply hasn't kept up but I, i'm just commenting that to have low credit 
growth. It can come, as Rich mentioned, that's a new theme for today. It can come from a nub, number of different factors, and one one can be linked to the other. But on the mortgage, um, this, this reminds me. Oh, go sorry, go I was going to say this reminds me of another pickup line called multivariate. <laughs> That's what you call it when you're doing uh, analysis when you have more than one thing. There's univariate, which is just one thing, bivariate, and a multivariate. And you know what what Robert uh, Aslan was talking about was like a multivariate analysis of a particular. Um, outcome given certain impulses. And uh, so there you go. That's your new pick. We haven't had a new one for a while. So there's one. Which one is <laughs> yours? Record. Which one is yours, Rich? <laughs> Multivariate. <laughs> well, I, I, so... didn't, I didn't mean you're flat. You're, you're lying. Which is your... Maybe <laughs> that's know, why the success... Us. <laughs> okay. Keith, on the, uh, on the mortgage credit side, though, like the thing that I find most interesting is like that's you know, mortgage credit growth is is one of the largest drivers of the origination of, of of new money into the system, right? Like banks create money by originating new loans and particularly obviously in Canada, new residential mortgage loans. And so the fact that you're running at, you know, 20 year lows, you would imagine that as credit growth becomes relatively benign, that that should in theory, slow the economy rather considerably. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, the, the economy grows at a, uh, like, you know, you have a velocity of money. You guys might know that, that, that phrase, of course. That's um, a good one. <laughs> for another pickup line, <laughs> the velocity of have money. Have you heard about the velocity and, of money? And, <laughs> but like, you know, we all know what the, the, the classic calculations or formula is for, for GDP growth. You know, you have consumption by government, corps and households. And then uh, plus your net exports. I don't know if I think I left anything out. It's it's all in there. And inventories. That's your, yeah, yeah. Plus, yeah, absolutely. You're changing inventories as well. And uh, but a, another way that's in it's a theoretical way to calculate GDP growth. So you can have you probably heard in the industry before. You know, top down and and bottom up. So from this perspective, you know, the way you calculate GDP growth, this is more like a, a bottom up perspective and some may disagree and say no it's not it's it, you know it, it's still at that level however th there's another way that you can estimate the strength of an economy and it's by looking at the velocity of money and on what it measures technically you can at the growth in the money supply and this is where it gets a bit uh hollywood like or a bit of fiction thrown <laughs> in but you're you're assigning a multiplier to it so it measures how fast is money swishing around in the economy and that's that's where you get the calculation for the velocity of money. So if you know what the increase, if you know what the change has been in money supply, and you already know what GDP is estimate maybe from the private sector or something, you can work that out and see, hey, that's the velocity of money. So it's a common thing people look at. How fast is it swishing around the economy? So to Steve's point, if there's a not if there's less money being made available to the economy. It means there's less money available to you know to swish around if you want to look at it from from that perspective. But it's incredibly important because if no one can get any, just say we have in a you know a, a world where there's no credit provided. So if, think think of a nice happy world for governments where they're only spending the tax revenues that are coming in, right? So there's no leverage going on. Um, you know, in, in that world, you don't need credit. So you're just driven by, you know, your regular income coming in. But if we had that scenario, that's why we talk about, and I've, I've been lately, I've been, you know, sharing my view that I, I think we have a probability of a, a very strong credit crunch coming up. That means that uh, the household sector and the corporate sector won't be able to borrow 
not as much as before. And if that happens, this means there's not as much new money coming into the system. So if at the household level, maybe it's, you know, for holidays or or just regular spending and, and stuff like that. If it's at the corporate level, maybe it's for capital investments, you know, a new manufacturing plant and stuff. But if we get into a, a, a credit crunch with this less capital being made available, the velocity of money, you know, will come down further. And that's how you get that, you know, slowdown coming up. So yeah, uh, Steve, you are right with, with less credit coming into the system in, in Q1. It, it's not positive, that's for sure. So we'll see which way it turns here on, on the way up. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, just to kind of summarize there, I've been watching, um, you know, building permit data, which is down, you know, the lowest levels since December 2020, building permits being a leading indicator, building permits being a leading indicator ahead of housing starts. So now obviously, Rich, we're seeing the housing starts rolling over. And so I just look at it and say, at the end of the day, Yes, the national housing market right now is still tight because you've got very low inventory, but you're still you don't have a ton of volume. Volume's still relatively benign. You've got 20-year lows in mortgage credit growth. You've got building permits running at very low levels, housing starts starting to come off. And so I think of all that economic activity that is derived by housing in the Canadian economy. We know that it's sort of a one-trick pony in this country, that I still think things are going to slow materially. Um, and so, you know, yeah, I think people that are, are chasing the housing market, I think there's still, you know, caution warranted. I don't think, uh, I think the next 12 months could be rather bumpy. So, um, I think that kind of rounds out the yeah. housing stuff. Yeah. I mean, just to finish off, I mean, the, but the bumpiness, like, you know, we're, we're not trying to scare anyone away from buying a home because, you know, I'll, I'll always say buying your home is different than buying a house, which is your, you know, an investment property, your second or third unit. Um, you know, as long as, you're going to continue to have income coming in to service this debt that you're going to have, you know, then, then you'll be fine. But that's where we come back to the whole recession story here. So if you have a rock solid job as a realtor or a double macro strategist or a money manager, you know, we're all fine. Um, you know, but that's, but seriously, it's the economy that's going to determine whether, you know, you're, you're able to meet the, uh, the funding cost. Is anything coming up. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, which kind of leads us to you know the next conversation, which is the uh, Fed. We had the Fed, the ECB, uh, Bank of China as well. Is that what you call them? Bank of China, People's Bank of China, People's PBOC, PBOC. baby. Yeah, PBOC. Um, Rich, I guess you know leading up to the Fed, you had US CPI. I don't know if you want to quickly cover that. Kind of, it seems like it kind of came in on the screws in terms of expectations, but. Yeah, I mean, I I got the feeling that everybody was like cheering that the that that uh, inflation fell, um, which again, so it's so month on month prices went up. Um, so headline was zero point one, core was zero point four. We know that year on year inflation is still coming down, but prices are still rising. So, um, so that was the thing I thought that was quite interesting. I think there was a couple of mistakes in the analysis. One I got from my client, it wasn't even me who picked up on it. People were talking about how insurance costs are blowing out because, and that's like a one-off. It's actually to do with electric vehicles, which is really interesting. Um, there's a certain company, I'm not sure if I'm a liberty to say the name of the company, but there's a certain co company that, that fired their CEO because they misunderstood the changes in insurance premiums and write-offs related to, for example, um, electric vehicles. So because Teslas are very difficult to repair when you have a, when you have an accident in Tesla, 
you have to write it off. And that write-off number is much, much, much higher than pre with like a, let's say a, a, a comparable, um, you know, four-door sedan that's an internal combustion engine. Anyways, so that insurance premium is jumping. So that, that was really interesting. Um, things that we talk about a lot, I'm not going to go over too, too much, which was shelter continued to rise. So yes, the contribution is falling, but um, we know it's lagging, but it's still positive. Um, energy continues to drag down on the headline stuff. And the general core is still quite high. I mean, and so the, you know, the story is the same. We peak is behind us and prices are, are rising, but just at a slower rate. Uh, Keith. Yeah, I mean, so something? so very quickly, um, you know, the, the all the inflation data, it's it's growing at a slower rate than the month before and, and year over year. It's going that direction. Do, if you're looking at uh, core year over year, we're at 5.3. I mean, so, you know, if they want to get that magical 2% rate, it's still a, a ways to go here. But the, the market uh, got, a, got a bit excited, right? Because remember, this came out on, on Tuesday, and the Fed was come the next day. Um, so all the inflation data, it was, it was still kind of hawkish. Like, there was nothing in there to say, oh, wow, yeah, the Fed is going to stop. But there was one number that I know the Fed looks at quite a bit, and they're looking at the uh, average hourly earnings and weekly earnings so the previous month's earnings growth uh now earnings is for for individuals you know what we're making for income so down for the americans uh last the revision from the previous period became worse so it was more negative uh so that's dovish that means hey people have less money to spend and then for the current month it was pretty soft as well so then, then that sort of helped the market say yeah okay let's let's go on to the races again and then we jump to wednesday the next day but wait 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 but i think just can i just jump in there sorry i think it's just i think often we get stuck with just repeating the numbers and that's fine and it's easy to do i think in general people just need to this is my personal view i'm not i don't mean to speak for you guys i think people just need to make peace with the fact that inflation full stop will be much higher than what we've dealt with the last 10 years there's several different reasons why this is true. We've talked about it on whether it's demographics and structurally higher wages, whether it's budget deficits that refuse to go anywhere near balancing themselves, whether it's the IRA, which is subsidies, whether it's squeezing uh, its investments in electric vehicles and, and green energy, which is inflationary. You can argue about with me. Uh, you can argue with me about that some other time, but those that's my view. So I just think we went from a world where it was one and a half to two, and that was basically 10 years of that. And I think we're just now structurally a new level of the threes and the fours for many, many reasons. But so I think that that's, and I think what that, there was just more evidence of that in my personal view. I don't know. What is Steve. the IRA that you mentioned? I, I, oh, I, I, the, I know it, almost everything you say all the time, except every now and then I'm like, <laughs> what the heck is he saying? What? what oh, was sorry. The, the IRA is called the Inflation Reduction Act, which is Joe Biden, one of Joe Biden's, oh, okay. I would say, banner yeah. legislations. Uh, I think it's an absolute misnomer. It it follows on from the CHIPS Act. Well, don't ask me what that stands for, but basically it's about bringing home supply chains in America and building up a barrier between America and China. This is a, maybe a conversation that we should explore with somebody who's more of a China expert, but basically the world is bifurcating and it's, which means to split into two and it, and it's basically China versus the US. This is this is the next hundred years that we're about to deal with. And the America first doctrine, which I start was started by Donald Trump, has been absolutely carried by Joe Biden. Joe Biden is just the better marketer of that view. And the Inflation Reduction Act, in my view, is extremely inflationary because it means subsidies and it means tariffs and it means 
um, it means making supply chains less efficient and pulling them away from China. Now, that's a bold statement, which maybe, Steve, we can talk about some other day, but that's what the IRA is. I was just thinking about uh, still focused on inflation here. I was looking. At I've got <laughs> Sorry. The, I've Sorry. got the, no, I've just got this true inflation uh, chart in front of me. I know you guys like to uh, chirp it, but it's sitting at 2.34% right now. True USA, true inflation. So if you don't believe the government, the conspiracy <laughs> theories, you don't believe the BLS, or whatever, uh, it's uh, true inflation. Is coming in at two, three, four. So U.S. headline inflation, of course, at four percent. Rich, so, what what does the BLS stand for? The Bureau of Labor Statistics. <laughs> I like this new game. This is awesome. This is cool. <laughs> no, because I can never remember what Jolts is. I still don't remember. <laughs> it's job openings. Job openings. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, that kind of leads. Yeah, I mean, leads us into the Fed, though, right? So, I mean, Keith, I know I caught you just before the Fed meeting. What yesterday? Um, I know you, you woke were... me up. I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow. <laughs> I know you had your popcorn out. Uh, what, what was your overall takeaway from, from Powell there? I mean, so I, I you know, I, I'm critical of Powell for a number of reasons, but uh, just on, on the face of it for everyone, what the Fed did, they, they did, they, they didn't raise rates yesterday, but they strongly hinted they're going to raise again at the next meeting. So they're now they're referring to it as they're skipping. You know, it's it's, it's a skip, Hawkish not a pause. Skip. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it was like the most, it wasn't a hawkish pause, which which is what some people thought. Remember, prior to the meeting, the market was expecting no rate hike and they were done. So it, it was a, a pretty dramatic change. And that's what the statement was. That's what was announced. And again, markets were all selling off as it as if, okay, wow, they're they're doing this when they're gonna continue hawkish and even more hawkish than before. Like it just shocked everyone. And then Powell starts to speak. You get the impression when he talks, like he just wants everyone to like him. He's just a little, <laughs> you know, you just to his voice and it doesn't matter what the words are, but you, you don't have a strong reaction to it. Uh, but he sort of doesn't have, like during this entire journey with the rate cycle going higher now from zero to five, not once has he really come out with any teeth. He did it once at the Jackson Hole meeting last last summer, it was. Uh, I think he had a 90-second speech, which I, I thought was outstanding. And uh, But it is always just sort of bouncing around. And then you get the presser, and he's, again, he's almost afraid to come out aggressively. And there's a reason for it, I'm sure, that we will never be aware of. But we know that was the move with the Fed. They now skipped a meeting. So they're going to continue to raise rates. And I know we're going to other ones, but the Bank of Canada, you know, they started raising rates again. The Aussies are now doing it. The Brits are doing it. We had another central bank out this ECB. morning. Hold on. But if this guy, yeah. like, let's, like, I'm kind of curious to unpack this. If this guy is so hawkish, right? The hawkish skip, like, why wait? Why not just raise, why not just raise rates now? Why, why are we wait? Like, why is he waiting till July? Good well, you point. can make a lot. Yeah, absolutely. But you can make an argument that they're not going to raise rates anymore. But instead of coming out with that and letting equity markets, especially get further stretched, than where they are right now. When you come out and you say, hey, uh, we're stopped now. We're likely going to raise again, data dependent and all that. So you try to 
you know, you, you keep the lid on, you know, the top of the kettle, you know, it's, it's moving, you know, it, it's all this pressure is building up. So they don't want it to blow it sky high. So you want to try to maintain it like that. That's one. Like he's essentially just, but I said last week, yeah, but I said last week or week before I said, Hey, like if I'm at the bank of Canada, I think I'd use the example and they're still not quite happy with where the inflation uh, data points are coming out. Instead of this 25, just go 50. If, If you want to, crush inflation people don't like to hear it and i'm just being objective about it you you'd literally have to create severe job losses you need to create losses so that loans are not paid back to the banks and and so forth and so whenever you get a, a an economy where loans go bad that that's highly deflationary for an economy and so you, that's what they need if they really want to bring inflation down. But as of right now, like this, you know, what I can hear from Powell yesterday and a lot of the data supports as well, it, it sounds like they're quite happy. They're saying, hey, we we achieved a soft landing. Now, of course, the Canadian said that was it three months ago. Remember that, Steve? April. Yeah. Tiff was was, was it April? We're, we're in June. Um, yeah. Yeah. Remember that? And then all of a sudden, like two meetings later, you know, they're, they're back on, back on again. Are they on the wagon or off the wagon? What would it be? They're on the wagon, right? They're on. Uh-oh. <laughs> I don't remember. I feel, yeah. I mean, I, to, to your point though, right? If the BOC came out with a surprise 50, I mean, I think even the 25 last month or this month, I suppose, was a bit of a shocker. Like I know like people that are in the, in the real estate sector, which is obviously seeing, you know, some resiliency. Um, I think it does start to change the sentiment, right? Like it's, I mean, how much of inflation is is psychological? It, it's a lot because you know we refer to that as inflation expectations. So if if you, I mean, for example, if you think that the price of you know a, a new car is going to be higher next year than it is this month, and you're in the market for that big ticket item, you're going to say, "I'm going to buy now." I'm not going to wait because then I'll have to pay more. So if all of a sudden though, and then to do that, you know, it'll increase my credit and, and credit stress, stuff like that. But if you get the entire population or the economy, including households and, and governments to have the belief that, hey, prices are not increasing. I don't have to scurry around to do things. I can just live a normal cycle. Then that's that's what they want for the economy. So that's why you sort of have to temper it. But I'd be a great central banker. I would just say that. Rich, you got a, you got a comment? Go ahead. I got something to say too. Yeah, just really, really quickly. It was just like, um, it's something that Mario Draghi, who was the previous um, ECB president, used to always, always harp on. He used to, in fact, he'd never really talk about inflation. He always talked about inflation expectations. And in Canada, they've become unanchored. And that's another word that he used to use. And it, it, it was useful. Because, and how do I know this? Because the BOC does a survey and they literally ask Canadians, what do you think inflation is going to be in next month, next year, and five years or whatever? And, uh, you know, two, three years ago, zero percent of people Canadians thought that inflation would be above three percent over the next two years and now something like 79 percent of people do so that's there's so a why, why did zero material. think that a few rich why did zero people think that a few years ago well because to be fair told. <laughs> <laughs> we were told no, I mean, no, <laughs> I mean, oh no no so I mean no no before before excuse me excuse me before the pandemic but but to be fair inflation was relatively uh stable I mean not zero but uh, it was relatively stable around 2% for a long, long time. And so people got into that sort of mindset that that's what was true. 
the, the dangerous thing, and people who live in emerging markets will know this, that inflation expectations, once they start getting unanchored, it has a tendency to run away. Sorry, Steve, please. No, I mean, I was literally just going to chime in. I know because people have been asking me on like the housing front. So like we're talking about sentiment. So like the Bank of Canada are raising 25 basis points. We're now seeing obviously bond yields pushing higher. So mortgage rates are going back up. And, and so people are like, okay, this is like, this is it. Uh, you know, this is going to really hammer the market. And I agree. However, if you're expecting that to happen in the next two or three months, I can tell you anecdotally what's happening is that people that have rate holds right now, because you can typically rate hold for uh, four months. So you got a pre-approval, you got a rate hold. I can tell you like anecdotally, the conversations that I'm having with some people, again, right or wrong, is they're saying, I want to make a purchase before my rate hold expires because I've, I've got a rate hold at 4.8. And when that rolls over, the new rate is 5.3. And, and so right or wrong, I, I, I think you're going to see sort of a, a little bit of a push of activity as well. Um, and this, we saw this in the mortgage stress test, right? And you're like, well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Why would people rush a decision knowing that higher rates probably means potentially lower prices logically? But we saw this in the mortgage stress test, right? Which was like at, towards the end of 2017, we actually had a blow off top into 2018 because basically everybody that was on this uh, pre-approval wanted to get a purchase in before they were going to be restricted on how much they could borrow through the stress test, mm -hmm. which again, made no sense because you're like, well, why not just wait until that new rules and fully in place and prices came, will come down, which they did. They came off about 10%, but I can just tell you like how most people tend to think is not like this podcast and all, you know, all the, uh, our, our loyal <laughs> listeners are, are thinking. This is a podcast. I thought. <laughs> Wait, is this on? <laughs> anyway, I thought we're chatting with Rich's mom. What, what, what's going on here? Well, it goes to show, right? Like, I just like the the human sentiment, the human emotion of of markets um, can be sort of sometimes hard to predict or or rationalize because people are not rational a lot. You know, a lot of the times. Yeah, is Mrs. Diaz going to come to Vancouver? Uh, no, she's gonna be in Portugal. She's gonna be in Portugal. But that, but but Steve, that's um one more. Sorry, sidebar. If you don't mind, Keith, <laughs> I'll give you her number offline. Um, but but sidebar is that like we're actually seeing it in the equity market, and so we're starting to see uh, that same thing is happening in with institutional investors and retail investors as they're seeing the S and P five hundred crack, uh, crack forty two hundred crack. 4,300. I don't know what's going on in the markets today. We're seeing retail investors who are watching tech go up and just chase the market. And I know because some, you know, I've I've been way too bearish this year on risk assets. So that's my bad. But I know that institutional investors who are seeing the year-to-date numbers climb higher and higher are now playing catch-up. And that's a day that's back to your psychology, which is you're seeing this number float away from you and you want to play catch-up. I know Keith, you're I was wondering if you had some light on you could shed some light on that. Keith, but. the PM guy, get in here, buddy. The um, I don't know what. So you talk about equity market, like the. Uh, I'm sort of, no, I'm not trying well, no, to be funny right now. But no, but the, retail investor, you can see the retail flows have jumped in the last month. Be, and and can you blame them? I mean, Nasdaq's up thirty percent. I mean, Nvidia's up. God knows how much it is, and and markets are yeah, doing well. Yeah, I mean, you're, it, it's you know, people used to say, "Hey, you're chasing the market." It's not a bad thing to chase the market, like, but you you can't chase it with. It's going up. I have to buy. You need some kind of a model to use, like a trend model of some sort, would certainly help you. You know, guide you towards. Okay, yeah, it's getting a, a bit frothy. Then what you want to do is overlay that with sentiment data, 
And uh, so sentiment data right now, we, we get, we have access to some sentiment data. It comes up from DSI. That, that's the, the, uh, how do they the measure the, that? Like, how do they measure sentiment and like a chart? You know what I mean? Like, I'm curious. Do you know what they use? There, no, I don't. I'd like to have a smart answer for you right now. Uh, I will find out the answer to that for, for next week. We'll go through, but it, it's a quantitative response from a survey. I mean, that's that's what it would be. I'm thinking. Did you? But did you, you always the, go ahead? Sorry. Well, sorry I mean, I with sentiment data, you always want to consider what market sentiment is. So some of the sentiment data we get it covers every single market imaginable in the financial market world, right? Not not in the real estate world. And uh, it goes from zero to 100. So nothing is ever at 100, nothing's ever at zero. But if so, right now, these equity markets, especially NASDAQ, like I think it's 90 plus, it can't get much better than that. Like unbelievable. And meanwhile, some of these other markets are down like single digits almost. So, you know, from a, a pure market sentiment perspective, you know, you want to, you know, selling NASDAQ at, at this point, you know, buying the markets like Nat Gas has just been, you know, beaten up incredibly high, you know, over the last few weeks and stuff. But you have that, but you want to overlay with that. If you have like a, a trend sentiment, sorry, a, a trend and momentum model, and that's starting to roll over. And then you look at, you put sentiment on top of it, that could guide you to, uh, you know, a successful move. But you know, people lost a lot of money last year. So you can't blame them from trying to, you know, chase this higher. Well, I was just going to rattle off a couple of sentiment indicators that people, I mean, I can, so there's like something that's like options. So people use the, the movement and pricing of options as a sentiment indicator. There's an RSI, which is a relative strength index. There's market breadth, which is the number of stocks in a given index or out of a number of constituents that are going up. So above your 200 day moving average or below. Then there's literally surveys. So there's an American Association of American Individual Investors and they ask them, are you bullish? Are you bearish? Are you overweight equities? Are you underweight equities? Um, then there's things like credits, uh, credit spreads that can often indicate sentiment. So for example, sovereign CDS are falling. There's loads and loads and loads of different ones. I don't know what DSI uses, but I would imagine... I probably touched on a couple of them, uh, Steve. I'm that, that oh, I'm pretty cover. sure the Fed actually just came out with a paper. Uh, yeah, so the Fed just came out with a paper said Twitter chatter and financial market sentiment. <laughs> so the Fed they just published a paper on how uh, FinTwit, financial Twitter sentiment correlates with market returns and financial conditions. Not surprised, uh, and that is not a joke. They wrangled up you know 20 PhDs and put that paper together. But Twitter, Twitter is actually a great sentiment barometer. Um, you know, it's obviously it's not smooth. You can't look at a chart and say, but I think if you filter through Twitter, you can kind of get a pretty good idea of, of general sentiment. On, on a lot of things. <laughs> a lot of things. Cool. <laughs> so, so yeah, I just, had... I just uh, texted my friend. Uh, this is Brent Johnson. You might know Brent's name. I just say, Brent, I'm on a podcast. How is DSI calculated? You know, question mark. This is Brent, like the smartest guy out on platforms these days. And he's listening. He'll laugh. Brent says, I have no idea. All I know, it goes uh, from 10 to 90 usually. If it's above 90, it's <laughs> that's my point. Sometimes people <laughs> just don't know things. Well, I mean, apparently apparently it works. But uh, I mean, yeah, it's a key. So you have the, the Fed, obviously, hawkish skip, whatever that means. <laughs> um I found it interesting though. Didn't they basically forecast uh, that recession? Like, 
You were talking about soft landing, but I think, uh, so the Fed, I guess, updated their sort of GDP forecast saying that in order to basically in order to arrive at 1% GDP for the whole of 2023, which is what they're forecasting, you need to see negative growth in Q3 and Q4. Assuming the Q2 now cast. So basically, um, yeah, in order to hit the Fed's sort of 1% GDP target, you're going to have to have two consecutive. Negatives. Yeah, no. I, I, you know. I, I, it, because the way cycles work, the, the next change in the cycle is a recession just by default because we, we've been in an expansionary economy right now. And it gets, it continues to get pushed out further. And think of it like, we need a recession because it's it's a normal it's a normal thing to do. You breathe in, you breathe out, right? That's the way an economy works. When it gets overheated and it's grown too quickly, uh, it will attract money, inefficient capital to a sector, and they get priced out and they have losses. And you know that's what sort of cleanses the market, the economy. And then then we go off again. And a lot of people, including us, we were expecting to be in a recession by Q2. And Nick, we're almost like we're days away from Q2 being over. And I think some economists might try to say that there is a recession in some parts of the economy, but it's not. I mean, the economy is still growing well and stuff, but it, but it gets it is getting pushed out, Steve. So for for the American economy to go into a sharp recession, a sharp recession in Q3 and Q4. I think that would be a clear shock to the system, and it's certainly not something the Fed is expecting. So it might get pushed out now and say Q end of Q3, Q4 into Q1. But policymakers right now, like they're just not expecting it. Same thing in Canada, uh, especially on the fiscal side. I mean, we went through uh, you know the conversation with Robert last week. Uh, we look at expectations for recession over the next, I think it was ten years. It was zero. Like it's never going to happen. But that's what the uh, central bankers are are talking about now. And that's the soft landing. So they're finally, again, they're congratulating themselves that, you know, we, we've done it. We've achieved it. I mean, it is amazing to, to, to the, the fact that nothing is truly cracked yet, given given the amount of debt in the world and, and how quickly interest rates have moved. I mean, I think there's a lot bubbling under the surface. There's been some, you know, a couple of big banks, obviously, in the U.S. and, you know, some stuff in the U.K., the gilt market. But I guess for the most part, our largest well, concerns. Have I've got there. one. I've got one. There's um, so junk loans. So default. So this is an article from the FT of a couple of days ago, which is so there's. Um, I know that one. Financial Post. <laughs> no, Financial Times. <laughs> It's an FP. Oh, financial no, Post is the shitty the Canadian financial, version. Of it. No, no, Financial Times. Financial Times, and it's the pink newspaper if you're ever reading the pink in the one. UK. It's the pink one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we're actually seeing um leverage leverage loan market. Um, so basically junk bonds. So there's investment grade bonds, which is a triple A rating. Um, often given by less than stellar rating agencies, but that's that's a conversation for a different day. And then there's um, I can't remember is it triple B or below. Anyways, it goes from A to I think D or F or whatever it is. And so you got like you know maybe companies that have a don't have as much of a track record or have much more volatile earnings or have less assets to back the loans, whatever. Anyways, these are called junk loans, and those defaults are starting to rise significantly. And it sort of makes sense, right? You have much higher rates, you have slowing growth, um, and you have other, and then credit basically is being tightened. 
um, maybe not fully yet, but then there's and the other thing, the other country that I think is we haven't talked about at all, I think is definitely worth noting is there's a very huge economy that keeps cutting its instead of um, raising interest rates, uh, China is cutting short term borrowing and doing sort of the opposite of what what's going on in virtually every other major economy. So all the Latin American economies raised rates. They're now pausing virtually every single Asian economy in the world raised rates. And now they're sort of on pause. And the, and then obviously there's the ECB and the UK, the one major, major outlier, which is what 20, 25% of global GDP is China. And they're cutting short-term borrowing. They just did a couple of days ago and uh, they're trying desperately to get their economy going back. Keith. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because you know, I, before you said China, I thought you were going to mention Saudi Arabia. The Saudi, oh, I bring that I up. Know what's Saudi, going on there. Yeah, well, Saudi they don't get a lot of attention except in the oil world, but they, uh, you know, they're getting uh, some attention these days because they are leading, you know, the move for OPEC plus to cut rates. Sorry, not to cut rates, cut production because they need that. Uh, you know, the the estimate ranges from. 80 to 85 bucks, you know, for the Saudis, you know, to, to make money, to, to fund their entire economy and, and stuff like that. But, you know, but one of the uh, the wild cards we have coming up here is that there is some kind of a, a shock to energy markets to cause oil to, to go higher. So whether it's driven by the Saudis or it's driven by a geopolitical event or something like that. And as we know, when oil starts to surge higher very dramatically, very quickly, um, you know that that's negative for the economy, but, but but with the Chinese, I mean, it's something we've been talking about, you know, for some time now. Like they're, you know, they're, they didn't have miracle growth. You know, they just used a lot of borrowing, a lot of leverage, and now that the global economy isn't growing as fast enough, which means they don't have enough foreign capital coming in. Like it, it it's it's stressing the ability of borrower borrowers domestically to pay back the loans. Um, it's putting stress at the bank level. So when the um, when the PBOC, what's that one, Rich? People's Bank of China. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So far, I think you're winning. You're about seven. I have one, and Steve is still being <laughs> shut out here on on the acronym <laughs> game. But they they they're they're trying to you know help out the banking system there. They have to do it. But they the negative thing though is so by the way they lowered rates by ten basis points. Just, just to let you know, it's it's not huge, but it's it's symbolic. Now, one year loan is at two sixty five now over in in China. If you're at that level to, to borrow, but what it what also happens so domestically, as soon as you lower rates, you're getting paid less money in your savings. It it, it encourages even more capital to leave the country. And if you have a, a closed capital account. Uh, that that ain't a good thing because you know money's trying to get out and leave, and then it arrives on Steve's desk and kids Lano to buy a house <laughs> along the way. But China has that going on. Um, but they've but Steve, I mean Keith, they've they've also lowered their reserve requirements and they've lowered their deposit. This is like a this is a structural lowering of all interest rates and interest rate products, etc. And in order and trying to inflate. Their economy, as you as you said, well, I was reading that youth, youth unemployment in China is like twenty one percent right now, which is, yeah. uh, I mean, it's certainly for you know you would imagine for a communist government trying to keep the social cohesion, uh, it's probably not a good thing. And that's age of sixteen to twenty four. So with with that, so remember the Arab Spring, you know, from maybe I think ten years ago now, maybe twenty eleven, twenty eleven, yeah, you know, you're you're it was summertime. 
I call them kids, but you know, young adults that they weren't able to find work and you know things like that. And that's that's when you get civil unrest taking place because old guys like me, we're, we're not going to protest physically. We'll do it on the internet or something. But <laughs> when you get a, a younger generation and and they're not happy because they can't make money, they're living at home and all, all that stuff. Uh, you know, it, you you can get some. Uh, and an increase in civil or domestic stress very quickly, right? It, it could happen. So, I mean, uh, the, the Chinese are clearly worried about this. And uh, they're also, to, to give you an idea how worried China is about things, you ready for it? You know what I'm going to say, right? What they did in Hong Kong? I'm holding my breath. <laughs> it's not an acronym game. It's just a... Uh... <laughs> So a couple of years ago, when the, all the protests were taking place in, in Hong Kong, there was a song called Glory to Hong Kong. So it was the protest song. And uh, so just over the last, I'm going to say week or 10 or 12 days, that the government there basically made it illegal. You could be imprisoned for singing this song. And I read that first. I'm saying, oh, man, that's pretty, it's pretty aggressive. You know, it's the thought police, of course. But also, do you know what happened next was that all of a sudden the song has been removed from Spotify, um, iTunes, anything like that. And and, they, and again, that just tells you that you know they're losing control or they're desperately trying to maintain control on things. So just as you know, every and again, I talk about synchronized risk all the time. It can be financial market risk, uh, but this is social risk that's taking place. So that it it is happening all over the world. And again, if China goes, you know, you know, snap in the middle of the night, you know, we'll we'll feel it when we wake up. I wonder if Steve, they, sing, uh, sing the song, Steve. Do you know? No, it? I wonder if uh, I wonder if the loony hour is available in China. No, Does anyone know? <laughs> uh, I'm sure um, one of our fans will, will get back to us. <laughs> our fan will let us know. Yeah, yeah, yeah one guy in China, big um, supporter. Yeah, but we, so talk, we also had we talk the ECB, the... Oh, ECB today, right. right? Go ahead, go ahead. Want, want to do the ECB real quickly because I thought it was a pretty simple one. Um, you know that the, so they they raised by twenty five basis points, which was one hundred percent expected. They affirmed that the likely like ninety nine percent sure going to raise by another twenty five at the next meeting in July. That was completely expected. But they they continued to sound very very hawkish. Like they came out with the way that Powell should be coming out. Like they were very, now I think they have less teeth. I, I think, I don't think they're going to be able to, it, the reason I say that about, about Europe, by the way, because so many other external events can affect the European economy. Whereas the American economy are really the ones that are affecting other people. Do you know what I mean? Remember the Breaking Bad TV show? Did you guys see I that? I watched it. What? I'm sorry. I never watched it. I know oh, I'm a bad man. person. <laughs> oh, dear. Jeez. Well, anyway, there's this famous scene during the... Do you know the storyline, Rich? Do you know what sort happened? Of, yeah. I know it, yeah, yeah. Keith. Go ahead. Most of our listeners know it. <laughs> yeah, I've been under a rock here. <laughs> anyway, it's this one scene where, you know, Walt, at this point, he's head on in, into the drug world and, and manufacturing and distribution. He was a business guy as well, right? He knew the right words. Um but at one point, his wife says to him, uh, like, are, are we in danger? Like, should we be afraid of like someone showing up here in, in the middle of the night? And he looked at her and he said, he didn't say these words, but he said, honey, we don't need to worry about that. I'm the one they're afraid of, of showing I'm the up one at knocks. their house. 
yeah, I'm the one who knocks based like that. So that's the difference between, you know, Europe and America. America is Heisenberg, Walt White. This might be a great story. We'll see how this one goes, how it's received. But yeah, but the Europeans today, they, they come out extremely hawkish at the ECB level. Um, and it was enough to, you know, surprise them. So right now is a, is a pretty strong risk on day in that world. And so again, all the central banks, they've all now, all of a sudden, they've been synchronized again. They all went so, from almost pausing to now they're all hiking at, at some level or another. Well, I have no idea what what the, any of that Breaking Bad analogy means, but I do know a way of bringing it back down to earth and data. And one way, one really, really easy way of saying it is um, exports play a much, much larger part of the economy in Europe. So exports as a percent of GDP in the US are like 12 to 13%. It's one of the only economies in the world that can basically be self-sufficient. It doesn't really contribute that much to its GDP. Whereas in Europe, um, you have you have countries like Ireland that are eighty percent of exports to GDP or eighty percent, but that's a function of the tax shenanigans from big companies like Apple, and then you have com- countries like um, Germany, which is thirty and forty percent, France, which is you know in the low thirties, and you have an enormous amount, um, and so that's the so the global economy is the dog, and Europe is the tail. So as the global economy goes up and down, the machinations will affect countries like Germany that are very very linked to exports and especially goods. And if you'll notice, goods year on year are starting to slow as people have made the shift from you know of staying indoors and buying things on Amazon to going outside and buying services. And the U.S. is a much, much more dependent on services. So I have no idea what Walt is, but I do know what exports of percent of GDP are very, very large in Germany. And that's why they're at the mercy of the global cycle. Hey, Steve, do you, how do you think Rich is going to be received online when he's here admitting <laughs> he doesn't know about Walt White? Yeah, you need to you need to immediately watch that show today. It's uh, it's it's fantastic. I think it's probably one of my top top three TV shows of all time. We need the soundtrack on for Rich even suggesting that, right? You know, click. There we go. Uh, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get killed in the comments. What about, I can uh, feel it. <laughs> Germany's already in recession though. No. Yeah. Yeah, Germany's tough, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it they're just so heavily geared towards global goods trade, whether it's cars, whether it's, I mean, they have an incredible engineering. And sometimes that's bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Rich. Uh, what, one point, though, on, on uh, European net exports, and I don't know what the number is, but it is significant. A lot of their exports actually goes to each other so it yeah. stays within you know your zone or eu depending on which which one you're, you're tracking but some of them are some of them what i mean by them are the some member countries like germany for example and so they're a lot more exposed to global trade than say someone like portugal, Greece, <laughs> portugal. yeah you know yeah. Something, something like that um yeah there she was what else, Steve? What's the, next? Oh, well, yeah. And for the final 10 minutes, we're going to pass the microphone to Rich to rant about ESG. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no we didn't, we're we going to talk about Ireland and the cows. Yeah, they're talking uh, about killing all the cows in Ireland. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if anyone. Well, I mean, I mean this. The story that really I think hit the airwaves is that I think there's these t- tobacco companies that have a higher ESG score, so uh, than than like Tesla or what have you. And I'm not going to pump for Elon Musk. I'm not exactly his biggest fan. I'm aware that tobacco kills something like eight million people a year. 
I mean, I love a good cigarette on a, on a late night out, but it obviously cigarettes are pretty bad. And they have ESG scores that I think trump a lot of companies um, that d- demonstrably do not kill 8 million people a year. Hopefully we're not going to get in trouble with that kind of claim. I think um, so people who don't know ESG is environmental social governance and it's sort of the new AAA rated mortgage um, or mortgage-backed security of the finance industry. In my personal view, I know I'm going to get a lot of pushback from my colleagues maybe, but I, I'm just, I'm very, very skeptical of number one, sort of the value that they actually can provide investors. And I'm also sort of of the view that it's really a marketing shtick that can be abused by people in finance to separate retail investors from their money. Keith, you're pro- you're in that world. I know that you probably have some pressures on you to to, to do some of that stuff. So I'd I'd love to hear your views on that. Uh, so we have zero pressure from our. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, we that's a we, we have surprise. we we have a um, you know our our clients uh, except for one guy with the funny shirt there. He uh, <laughs> our clients are very very much engaged with with the world's going on but just a couple of words though with, with the ESG stuff that people may not understand the appreciate the full picture uh the, the, so the whole idea of assigning a company an ESG score is that it, it's then going to either encourage or discourage an investor from allocating money to that company it's not really from a retail because a retail investor you you can't guide that much money to really affect yeah. the issuance that's coming out. But it comes to the pension funds. So the pension funds have now been um, infiltrated with, with this belief as well that they they need to you know, allocate to companies with a high ESG. So when, when all of a sudden with a whole bunch of the major pension funds around the world or even the top four here in Canada, when they decide, yeah, we're all in on ESG, we're going to allocate uh, because of this, they can look at it from the opposite perspective and say, you know what, we're going to allocate even less money to low ESG companies or industries, which is, you know, a lot of times it's, it's energy related, related companies. So it, it's a way to, the, the goal is to make sure that companies that um, a, a certain global structure has agreed that should be encouraged that they will get capital and then other companies and industries will will starve they'll have to pay more to get capital and then you know then over time the high esg rated companies should be able to do do better but it's all about directing billions of dollars in in new capital for investment to these subjectively rated companies but again like i mean (laughs) As your as a money manager, as someone that is you know protecting, preserving, trying to grow somebody's capital, that is your mandate. I, I think it's just incredibly irresponsible to not be targeting your high, highest rate of return. Well, that's that's the argument that the yeah. the Dallas, um, sorry, sorry, the Texas Attorney General have made, and several other attorney generals and governors in the United States who to their credit are were slow to wake up to this but are now really going after it. and they they they're suing i think still suing places like BlackRock and other asset managers to suggest that they're not fulfilling their fiduciary duties to their 
ultimate clients, which are in some cases are the voters or some cases the pension contributors. And, and it sort of makes sense. Like, you know, it's Keith says it's subjective. I have a different angle, which is I think it destroys information. And, and just if I may just take two seconds, when you're a bottom up analyst and you're looking at an individual company, um, environmental impacts and risks from that company are very important to analyze. So are governance issues. You know, if you've got, you know, every succession is a show that I'm starting to get into. If you have poor governance at the chairmanship or CEO, or there's some shenanigans on the board, that's an important economic and financial risk to that company. And then there's a social uh, aspect, which is, you know, are you paying children to make your shoes? That's a risk from a, from a and if you're, ball, if you're a real blue-blooded bottom-up analyst, you will have already analyzed those three aspects, as well as cash flows, as well as valuations, as well as growth, as well as risks to the, a particular company's moat or margins, et cetera. And what ESG scores do, in my view, is that they destroy information because they boil down what should be a multivariate analysis of different um different parts of a company's business or sector into basically one number. Now, the counter argument people will say is like, that's not true. There's many different numbers. And, and in my view, I've been in this game long enough to know that if you can rank a, a 500 companies from one to 100, and one being the best, you know, quote unquote, ESG score and 500 being the worst, that you're going to start screening, you, you will take the path of least resistance from an analyst perspective. And I think that's the danger, right? It, you lack, it lacks nuance. Um, and so that's, that's really the issue. Again, a really proper bottom up analyst will absolutely look at the environmental governance and social risks of the company combining them into one stupid number that you stick on on a stock or a ticker to me is not analysis that's marketing it's it's kind of i just love what you just share with us because there's another uh, score as well the a dei score that that's oh, out yeah, there sorry. yeah as well which What's stands that? for steve I just asked you. Steve is zero on everything here today. <laughs> PBOC. Diverse, diversity, equity, inclusion. So DEI. I'm now up. I'm at three. So Rich is winning yeah. like eight to three to zero right now. <laughs> uh, anyway, they, they sent that out to you know big companies. You know, is it they demanding that they complete this form? Uh, you know, perhaps the world's greatest bottom-up investor who happens to run an extremely large company, basically said, F you, I'm not completing this. This, this is garbage. So Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett said, yeah. screw this. And they said, oh, no, you have to. No, you're, you're you know, Brookshire Hathaway. He's like, no, we're, we we pass. We're, we're not doing it. So, yeah, but, and the other thing that to, to be aware of, because I know the uh, company BlackRock um, these days is getting a lot of attention as being one of the uh, like the Darth Vader companies out there around the world, and for a, a lot of good reasons and some reasons that maybe not so, but they have an incredible amount, an enormous sway into this ESG and, and DEI movement, and 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 that's because where they run like they're the largest. ETF manufacturer in the world, sort of both as passive and, and active strategies within their ETF structures. And what, what happens because they are the manager and they've allocated to all these countries, for any kind of shareholder board meeting that that's or board meeting or shareholders meeting that, that takes place, 
they are immediately the number one shareholder. In mo- if they're not number one, they're probably top three or four. And whichever way BlackRock would want to shift a company or an industry's focus or attention, they can do it. So, so that's why you hear that name coming up all the time. So BlackRock and, and Larry Fink, uh, that, that's out there. Diversity. But maybe, uh, yeah. An old we wooden all- ship. What? <laughs> you haven't seen that from Anchorman? Diversity. No. What is that? Oh, yeah. An old wooden ship. Uh, Rich. Uh, Rich has to watch more TV. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you guys have seen Anchorman, though. No. Yeah, I love yeah. that movie. Okay. Yeah. Thank God. Um, uh, just to but yeah, but Go one ahead. more thing though, but what, what you know, Rich was was bringing up, and I think you 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 highlight this, Rich. It seems like this phase of ESG is now starting to roll over because more companies and pension funds or managers, I guess, are starting to speak up, and and the media are starting to identify it as well. So back to your question, Steve. Like as an investment manager, sometimes like we will have clients, and they'll say you know, maybe we should invest in, in this or that. And I said, well, how, you know, it's, it's great to feel that way. However, every single company and industry that you can invest in, they're likely doing something you just don't like. It's, it's there. You like, you, you can't strip out all of it. So the solution sometimes is that, Hey, you know what, we're going to have a portion of the portfolio in this industry that you don't like for whatever reason. And if you feel that strong, like at the end of the year, we, we, we can donate, a part of those, uh, the returns or performance from that sector, if you want, like there, there are ways to get around it as opposed to, because if you stripped out your exposures to companies and industries and, you know, big names, you just don't like them, then all of a sudden there's nothing to invest in. It happens quickly. Like th- think of the healthcare profession as an example. Every single healthcare company is doing something that if you heard about it, you'd say, yeah, I don't like that. Same well, with like, I, I, yeah, Nikes pretty, and you name it. That's a funny point. I hear a lot of it on like uh, Twitter and stuff about like, you know, landlords are the sc- scorn of the earth, scumbags, anyone invest in housing. I was like, you are part of Canada Pension Plan, correct? <laughs> they are yeah. one of the largest landlords, not only in Canada, but actually in the United States. They've been buying up swaths of single family housing uh, in the US. Um can I just you know, same just, people that complain about oil, right? I mean, they're tweeting away on their oil-made iPhone, of course. But um, whatever. But there's one last po- final point on the yes, you think that I think is a more nuanced view, but I think it's something worth I think throwing into the conversation, which is we have a process in democracies, maybe not so much in China, by which citizens can orient the where their country is going and that's through the ballot box and through the legislative process and that's you know we live in quasi republics or whatever it is and so you obviously vote and that mp does something and then you if you get enough votes you know that you can pass some legislation and vsg whether people like to admit it or not subverts in my view this is maybe too personal a view but it subverts the democratic process because what you eventually have is you have a very, very small cohort of very powerful people like Mr. Larry Fink, whose effectively views via you know, proxy voting at the board level through ETFs and ownership of these companies can effectively subvert democratically elected uh, people and the legislative process. And, and you know, sometimes when, the, when they're aligned, 
everybody's happy, no one cares. But what happens when those two are not aligned? When what happens when Joe six pack votes one way, and the company had his in his pension fund votes against his best interest, for example, <laughs> to lower energy costs, which I always keep harping on, or to invest in a particular company that does this or that. And so I think, you know, it's maybe it's a more nuanced view, but I think it's really important. You know, no one really cares when those things are aligned, but when they're dim like diametrically opposed, I think the ESG and that kind of stuff does subvert um, the democratic process. And I think it's something worth considering when we when we talk about it. Yeah, it's a multivariant just, perspective. Multivariant <laughs> perspective, and just to to wrap it up. So yeah, it was the S and P Global gave Elon Musk's uh, Tesla electric car company an ESG score of thirty seven out of one hundred, uh, but yet it gave Philip Morris, the maker of Marlboro cigarettes, an ESG score of eighty four. So. Um, just to kind of round it out, but uh, we'll, we'll leave it there for this week. Uh, we don't want to get rich going too much here. Um, we, as always, we appreciate your guys' support. Uh, just to circle back, if you have any anyone that's interested in sponsoring the show or has some, some venue event ideas for Calgary, like I said, please reach out. We're uh, more than happy to hear from you, um, and we'll see you next week.